Hey there, and thank you for tuning in to Bandwidth Coast to Coast. I'm a pretty big fan of metaphor and analogy. One doesn't have to pay attention to me for very long to see that. And despite my overuse of David Foster Wallace, or any other statement that precedes me saying, it's like, what I'm most interested in though, and what I most want to produce with this show, are explorations of the places in which metaphor, analogy, or even words fail to be suitable synthetic models. That statement can mean any number of things, but let's narrow the lens for the purposes of this episode to just the synthetic label of the Anthropocene, or our current scientific age. An age carved in innumerable ways on every square inch of the surface of the Earth, air chemistry, and composition of our oceans. The ecological collapse and changing to the entire life system of our planet that gets summed up into that two-word synthetic label, climate change, is actually as my guest perfectly puts it, inexplicably complex. What we can do about it, though, is, just like anything else that happens when humans with our social-cultural problems enter the chat room, become inexplicably complex, spawning innumerable emergent problems. Problems that we don't see until they finally become big enough to measure their negative impact. Or, like the disappearing salt marshes in New Jersey, we're backed up against a metaphorical wall with our only options being to perish or persist. Unlike those salt marshes, though, our wall is built of the inexplicable world of ideas, not built of concrete and condos. All too often, we struggle with the incomprehensible scale of a problem instead of focusing on the numerous small, comprehensively simple solutions. Perhaps that's our nature. And perhaps, if we better know our nature, we can better solve for it, as well as an innumerable set of other scenarios. These are some of the ideas that come up in this fun, free-flowing conversation with Joshua Lord, Assistant Professor of Biology at Moravian College, where he helps break down how a changing climate and air chemistry is affecting our oceans. Professor Lord is a fantastic educator and scientist in the marine ecology, invertebrate zoology, climate change, invasive species, and predator-prey interactions. We cover a lot of topics, from what ocean warming means for ecosystems, how coral reefs can still thrive in a warming or rising ocean, a different way to look at thriving in the Anthropocene, and thoughts around the real difficulty in explaining something complex and detailed. If you want to learn what more carbon in the air chemistry does to the ocean, what coral is as an organism, why they're dying or bleaching white, look no further than the next couple minutes. Enjoy, and cue the ocean. Greetings. I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mystery Mike. I'm Slick Frong Sanders. Join us on the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour Mondays, where we look into the dark secrets of the conspiratorial world. We'll explore the likes of government cover-ups, the existence of otherworldly beings, unexplained phenomena, and cryptids. We tackle these topics with an open mind, a sense of humor, and dapper drippage. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and listen on all podcast platforms.
Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Um, if you wouldn't mind, just so we have it, could you just introduce yourself? I'm Josh Lord. I'm a um, professor of biology at Moravian College in Pennsylvania. Awesome. Thank you very much for, for coming on again. Um, so I would love to kind of dig into it. I have a, a question about your, your work I kind of want to start us off with. But before that, uh, there's a question I ask all of our first time guests, and that's, what do you do that makes you happy? <laughs> Um, I think right, right now, the biggest thing I do outside of work is spend time with my two-year-old. Um, and it's been really neat to see her moving into like the stage where she actually understands things and starts talking and stuff like that. So she's always discovering things and has a lot of ideas about exactly how she wants to do everything. Um, so yeah, especially during, um, these, sort of isolated times. She's definitely my biggest source of entertainment. That's really heartwarming to hear. Kids, little kids, especially around that age are great because they're finally starting to be able to interact with the world as opposed to kind of having the world presented to them. Yeah. It's a lot more fun than it is early on when, um, yeah, there's no sort of back and forth. Right. Right. It's uh, I don't have any kids yet, but I look forward to that transition from, uh, you know, you, you kind of need me for everything, but you're growing so fast. It's kind of astonishing. And then that transition that you're kind of experiencing where it's now they're starting to see the personality more than just in those little sideways glances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, thanks again. So uh, you do a lot of work with marine ecosystems. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Almost exclusively marine stuff. That's awesome. What, uh, what got you into marine life in general? Um, I took a class in college that was about it. My off, my college offered one class in marine biology and um, I'd sort of gone to college being interested in biology, but only in the sort of, I don't know what else I'm going to do sort of sense. Um, and so when that was the first time I think I took a class and I was actually, I don't know trying to pursue things outside of class. It wasn't just like, all right, what do I need to do? What do I need to learn to, you know, pass the next test? It was sort of like, well, there's all these animals that are these, these weird, crazy things. And we go to the, the intertidal zone for field trips, which is something that, I mean, anyone who lives near the coast can do, but um, I'd done before, but it never even occurred to me that there was just this sort of huge diversity of really weird life living right next to the shoreline. Um, and so then it went from like a class to doing a class project to a um, like honors project for undergrad. And then um, 
yeah, I just sort of kept just doing what I was interested in, I guess, instead of having sort of a concrete plan for where I wanted to go. And so I guess I never left that sort of area. Well, that's great. Not many people can kind of grasp on it, something like that. So that's, that's great. I know. But, lucky. Yeah. What, what's the inner tidal zone? Is that just the, like the area where the tides change? Yeah. It's the, the area between high tide and low tide, basically. Um, so most of the times when people go to the beach, that's there. I mean, it's mostly the, the nice smooth part that doesn't have lots of footprints is the inner tidal zone because the ocean flattens it out every high tide. Um, but it's more like the rocky. So I went to college in Maine where it's all rocky and the rocky intertidal zones are sort of these hot spots for biodiversity um, because there's some animals that are sort of living up high to avoid predators that are down low in the water. And so there's this really cool sort of zonation pattern where you get some animals living up high, some only live down low, um, all sorts of predator prey relationships most of the animals are pretty slow moving, which means when the tide goes down, they still stay there. Um, and so when the tide goes down, you can see all these, you know, snails and crabs and um, sea anemones and all sorts of other things that I sort of didn't even know existed until um, I was exposed to it for the first time. Um, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the intertidal zone is ends up being the probably the most heavily researched part of the ocean just because it's, definitely the easiest to access um, for pretty much anyone with no budget at all. <laughs> yeah, which is which is always a problem in academia. Um, so is it also so richly studied because obviously you don't need like some kind of deep sub, but is it also a pretty biodiverse? Uh, what would that be? Ecotone? Am I using that right correctly? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the weird thing is it's the most heavily party most heavily studied by the ocean, but it's, you know, probably a tenth of a percent of the actual ocean. It's just this, you know, tiny little 10 meter wide strip or something like that along all the coastlines of the world. And yeah, definitely in some areas, especially out on the West Coast, there's more intertidal biodiversity there. And it's partly because sort of that zonation I was talking about, there's some animals that if they were down like in deeper water, they would just get eaten by something. Um, but they can use this intertidal zone where they can, by tolerating being out of the water for a longer period of time than their predators, they find a way to survive, even though they're only in the water like half of the time or something as the tide goes up and down. Um, so it's this weird habitat because they're all marine. I mean, we think of them all as marine animals, but some of them are in the water like two or three hours a day. Um, and out of the water 20 hours a day, but we still, I mean, they're still marine animals. And I don't know, it sort of blurs the distinction between them. But um, I think, yeah, the fact that some of them, a lot of things can sort of hide up in the high intertidal zone and survive when they couldn't otherwise makes it pretty biodiverse. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know that about the, well, that, that kind of gray area about the, uh, the marine life. Um, so I live in, in Southern California and yeah. I, I actually experienced this. I, the rockiness is kind of interesting. I'm going to definitely look into that more because I'll go over here and see like the tide pools and stuff like that when there's the changing in tides. And you'll sometimes get one of those, like, you know, how like the, the changing of the water will sometimes like over time, like create almost like a, a hole in the rock, yeah. right? From all the vortexes. Yeah. Um, 
and you can look in there and sometimes like you're, it, sometimes it looks like you're looking at like one of those fish tanks from like the nineties that were like an old TV that like bubbled out, you know, where like you look, you look in and it looks like you're looking into this like perfectly set up aquarium almost. Cause you'll, you'll have like, you know, snails and crabs and sometimes there'll even be like a little fish stuck in there. Um, so I didn't, I never, I never thought about how that is a pretty nice microcosm of uh, biodiversity. Yeah. Especially on the West coast and the, um, the West Coast of the U.S. is a lot of nutrients in the water there, so it supports a really high amount of um, biodiversity in the coast. That's interesting. Is it more, it has more nutrients on, on this coast than the East Coast? Is that because of the Arctic flow or jet stream? Or? Um, it's because of the coastal topography and the wind, and so it causes mm. something called upwelling along the coast, which is basically that if you have wind that's pulling the water at the shore away from the shoreline, then obviously you can't get like a hole, like a canal in the ocean. So the water has to fill in from somewhere. And so it fills in by sucking up water from down below. Um, And so the whole West Coast, I mean, if you went to a similar latitude to where you are, but on the East Coast, you'd have really, really warm water. Um, But on the West Coast, it's cold because you get this deeper water pulled up um, and it's cold water, but it's nutrient-rich water. And so you get like um, phytoplankton, which are basically microscopic algae growing and doing really well there because they have tons of nutrients. Um, and then because that's the base of the food chain in the ocean, it just supports a higher you know, biodiversity of life there, um, basically because of the you know, wind patterns and everything. But on the East Coast, it's not this, the East Coast has sort of a, long continental shelf so it's pretty shallow out for a long time and so you won't you can't get deeper water sort of pulled up um, regardless of the wind patterns there so on the east coast it's more like a lot of the nutrients is coming from rivers and stuff like that that are dumping um, nutrients from runoff in whereas the west coast you get all these nutrients pulled up from the bottom of the ocean Um, wow yeah I, i i get like a I think geography is just a, such a wellspring of interest because it's those tiny little factors of, well, there's a d- steep drop off and because of wind, the surface, you know, the surface will be more turbulent. It creates a cycle and, you know, like that's such a, a wild set of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird because I don't know. I always sort of thought about if we're learning about this stuff about the ocean and sort of just like one big soup where everything can just sort of live everywhere and pretty much everywhere is the same. I mean, maybe animals living in different places depending on temperature. But other than that, um, it's all about the same, but that's not really, not really the case at all. Yeah. Our, our, uh, land living species kind of takes for granted all the, the numerous, uh, complexities. I, I, I started coming to San Diego, I think maybe around 10 years ago. I live here now, um, only for the past couple of years, but before when I first started coming here and the first time I went to La Jolla, I was just so like, shocked because i've been to like you know the philippines and more caribbean uh type settings but i've never been somewhere that was so teeming with life and it was in such like a small area and i can't the first time i went there was like when the whales were here um yeah yeah i actually saw one on a kayak not that far from me uh which really blew my mind uh and then they were explaining like you know because of the the cutting into the rock of, of kind of the Hoya Cove and all of that, like it, 
creates this really nutrient area. So all these species kind of come either to on their migration or they kind of come to hang out for a while. Um, and I had just the diversity of niches in the, in the ocean definitely kind of blew my mind. Yeah. It's a great place to be able to teach marine biology stuff too, because the intertidal zone ends up being the vast majority of field trips for high schools and elementary schools and colleges that are near there. Um, and here we, we, during normal times, we'll take a van and drive an hour out to the Jersey shore. Um, but it's mostly, I mean, there's nothing wrong with salt marshes and things like that, but the sort of rocky areas out here are just areas that are like jetties. So sort of human made, everything else is just beaches. And so we'll go out there and we'll, you know, flip over rocks and try to find things and, the rocky intertidal here will be like, oh, we find, you know, two snail species and one or two crab species. And maybe, you know, I don't know, we'll get like seven or eight total species or something like that. And I actually lead a, again, normal times, a field course out to Oregon um, in May. And so I took a lot of the, I don't know, 10 or 15 students out there. And it's sort of maybe your experience with La Jolla where they go out there to the rocky intertidal zone for the first time after just having seen the Jersey shore. And they're just like, Oh my God, there's like 30 snails and you know, all these there's fish and sea anemones and sea urchins. And it's, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm from Chicago and I'm used to like Michigan. So coming okay. out, coming out here and all of a sudden seeing more than just a, a couple brown striped fish was, was something else. <laughs> um, so yeah, I know like the, you said the runoff is mostly how they get the nutrients on the East Coast from uh, rivers and whatnot. How um, how complicated is that ecosystem now given kind of, uh, well, how can I frame this most targeted? Um, you know, the runoff from agricultural products, uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously sometimes sewage accidentally gets in there, uh, land, I mean, just trash uh, in particular. I know the East coast doesn't have as much of a problem with um, trash getting in as the West coast does just because we're constantly in, you know, flooding or, or dry. So kind of the ecosystem out here, leads to a lot more uh, trash runoff and, and problems from that. But particularly I, I know I'm doing some research for an essay for the pod on uh, nitrogen and uh, the kind of nitrogen runoffs. So that's really what the genesis of my question is, but I'm just curious as to how all of that runoff is, well, just, you know, the flowing of rivers and, and what's kind of getting polluted into them is affecting the East coast. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's careers researching that sort of stuff, but I mean, I think just from like the nitrogen, so the nitrogen and phosphorus are the two main nutrients that most plants need, but that means that the same things that we're putting on fields are the same things that a lot of marine plants or um, phytoplankton need as well. And so by itself, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I mean, it's everything in moderation, I guess. So like the, the Chesapeake Bay is a good example of that because it's a huge estuary um, where there's a lot of rivers and streams and stuff coming in and then eventually flowing to the ocean, but that's um, very agricultural around there. And so they get a lot of nutrients in there, which, I mean, theoretically it can support like I talked about for the West Coast, it could support a lot of phytoplankton and algae, which could support a large food chain, basically, or a lot of species. Um, but 
if the phytoplankton sort of gets out of control and then dies, then it decomposes and that sucks oxygen out of the water. And so then you get what's called hypoxia, where there's really low oxygen in the water and that kills a lot of organisms. Um, and so you get too much nutrients, you can get that. Um, and actually there's, even without that, there's a marine lake lock in Ireland that I went to for research for a couple weeks, like God, almost 10 years ago, I guess. Um, but it's surrounded by farms there. And one of the issues that they were having there is the increased runoff just from the farms around there was causing a shift from like the normal kelp and things like that, that are sort of the base of a normal marine food chain to just these really fast growing like weed type algae basically that would just grow, take over, smother everything and then die every year. And so it would form these mats and then sort of die off and cause low oxygen and kill off some of the things in there. Um, and they were saying, I, I only went there once, but they were saying that, you know, 10 years prior, they had pretty much none of it. And then it just been sort of steadily increasing over time. Um, but the point you make that there's other stuff in there too is another issue that I think we know not nearly enough about. Um, one of the things that is always flowing in there, I suppose, is, I mean, you mentioned bacteria and things like that. So that's obviously never good to get like sewage in the water. Um, but you get a lot of the pesticides or herbicides that are used flowing into the water. And so these are tricky because, I mean, you could talk to someone in toxicology about this. We have an aquatic toxicologist here, but she talks about how when you are looking at the effect that something has, I mean, you, you'll test it on a few sort of sample organisms, basically, if you're going to start getting a new pesticide approved for use or something. And so you'll pick like, here's my invertebrate and here's my, you know, we'll use a frog and a shrimp and, you know, a mouse and something else and test them at like two or three different doses. But everything responds to these things differently and the different doses matter and it's much more complicated. Not that you can test everything on every single organism. Um, but anyway, so you get like you would imagine if there's something that's meant to kill weeds in the water, it's probably gonna have a negative effect on plants in the water too. If there's something that's meant to kill like ants or whatever sort of pests are on the farm, then it's probably gonna have a negative impact on closely related crustaceans like crabs in the water. Um, but it's definitely complicated because every little location, the dose is gonna be different and the animals it's affecting are different. and. Um, then you get things we're putting in accidentally, like hormone stuff. So you can detect, basically you can detect levels of prescription drugs and um, basically different hormones and stuff from whether it's from birth control pills or things like that that are in the water. Um, and so there's effects that are really poorly understood on most organisms of a lot of the um, more complicated things that are in the water. And so, I mean, you can detect traces of all sorts of crazy things in the ocean. I think there was some study in Puget Sound that said they could detect like noticeable levels of caffeine and um, basically the remnants of birth control pills and cocaine and all sorts of, you know, a million different things. And who knows 
what levels are actually relevant. Um, yeah, well, well to, to your, your point. Oh, well, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, just that it's all getting in there from, you know, sewage systems that aren't designed to remove that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. No, I, uh, <laughs> I hike a lot. And one of the things I was reading, um, one of the, uh, I think it was Anza Borrega actually, which is like a big state park here. Um, I'm not sure, but I know one of the state parks that I, uh, subscribed to their newsletters was asking people to stop peeing on the trails because of people having caffeine. So like, you know, you wake up, you have your coffee, you don't think about it and you go pee and you go, you know, whatever. Uh, but the eco, the, some of the plant life was so sensitive to caffeine that it was starting to have a pretty no- noticeable effect from just people peeing when they're on a hike. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and it got me thinking, which then like, I feel that, you know, I don't know, it was around the same time as I read that I was reading about antidepressants that are entering like, mm-hmm. uh, well, I think this was actually the great lakes. And that was because of what you're the point you just made where sewage systems weren't designed to be taking out some of these pharmaceutical chemicals. Um, yeah. And with, I don't know the, the rate of increase of uh, antidepressants, but I know that it's large enough that it's, it's becoming like a, a pretty noticeable uptick, um, which is something that I don't think we think about, but, you know, just kind of tying in the geography of in unique places. I mean, even if it's just trace amounts, I mean, it could be because of oddities, like, you know, a, a shelf or a plateau, or maybe like a really biodiverse little region it has some type of channeling of water or maybe it's sediments there a little bit differently. And then all of a sudden that can really affect that, that, that piece of the ecosystem and kind of like with the climate change or ecological collapse or however you want to label the current epoch that we're in, I worry a lot about the turbulence of things, right? So it's like, you know, one area may have, it may be teeming with life and it's really biodiverse, but then another area that, you know, normally these organisms be living in is, is no longer there which really just makes everything more fragile, right? So if something gets introduced and, and takes out one area that used to be teeming, then, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's that biodiversity is kind of lost and those genes are kind of lost. Um, yeah. Which is really unfortunate. Um, so even if it's trace amounts of cocaine, I'm sure it's still pretty, it's, it's, it's going to have an effect somewhere, right? Yeah. I know some places have, or some like microplastics have been outlawed now too because that stuff is ending up just in the, I mean, because it's in everything. I mean, it's in sunscreen and toothpaste and lotions and uh, probably a million other things that I'm not mentioning, but um, I know. I uh, like, some of them outlawed. Yeah, they are. I know the one that was really uh, big and kind of getting some awareness. I don't know how much awareness left the industry, um, but you remember like, it was like 10 or 12 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe all those like body washes used to have those little beads in there. Mm-hmm. Those little beads were just little plastics, microplastics. Um, yeah. And I know that was a really big problem that was starting to get, you know, like they were starting to see it in like filtration systems and things like that. Um, which just goes to, goes to show we never really notice things until all of a sudden it becomes like a, a little problem becomes a big issue. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if in, in San Diego, do they sell, a lot of the sunscreens say like reef safe or something like that or animal safe or something. You know, uh, they sell a lot and there's, uh, I think it's, I can't remember the, the name of it, but there's a uh, brand I like a lot that's from uh, Hawaii. That's like uh, just oils and reef safe. 
um, but it's not required to be reef safe. So like okay. when I, yeah, cause like I, I'll go to like, if you go to any of the stores, like along the, cause it's usually just like little like mom and pop shops that are like along the ocean. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not all reef safe. You have to really look, look for it, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I think, I think maybe Hawaii might be the only place, well, one of the places that it's not allowed, um, the non-reef safe stuff. But I mean, it's some ridiculous number of like tons of, um, like the measurement tons of sunscreen that ends up in the ocean just from people going in, which is sort of wild. You don't think about it. You're like, oh, you know, if it says, if you're swimming, apply every, reapply every 15 minutes, it doesn't occur to you, or at least to me. It's like, oh, it went somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And what, what was in there that now went where? Right, right. Right. I, I didn't even realize about the microplastics. I just thought it was the chemicals, and I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I'm not sure if sunscreen is a microplastics issue. I know it's in some lotions and toothpaste and stuff like that. But again, I, I don't remember if it's allowed anymore or not. Yeah. Either way, there's still some harsh chemicals that I know are, are still allowed, which is unfortunate. Um, so I, I know you do a lot with like uh, ocean acidification and rising mm-hmm. kind of like sea temperatures. Um, and well, actually, hold on, before I get to there, I, I wanted to ask one question on the, the tidal zones. Is that is are those tidal zones almost like the Mediterranean climates of, of the uh, ocean? where it's kind of very small amount of the earth, but very biodiverse, um, kind of very rich with life. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you said like per adjusted for how big it is or something like that, then yeah, they're going to contribute, I think more than most other probably I'm just making things up here, but probably is about as much, probably less than corals, like coral reef habitats in terms of biodiversity, but certainly a lot more than just like if you took a random strip of the bottom of the ocean or a random um, part of the ocean, there'd be much higher biodiversity in the, yeah, the intertidal habitats. That's interesting. How, how are coral reefs like uh, a decent chunk of the ocean or is that still like a very small subset? Kind of like, I'm sure the tidal zones is probably smaller. I'm guesstimating here, but. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know an exact percent, but I don't think it's more than a percent or two of the ocean. Wow. That's, reefs um if that it's probably less than that but it's more than the intertidal zones i think um just because the intertidal zones are only a few meters along every coastline right um, areas like you mentioned the philippines that that whole indo-pacific area has a lot of shallow water where the corals can do well um, but yeah, yeah. relative to the whole size of the ocean not very much that's interesting I, I don't know, I was just part of the reason I was so excited to, to chat with you is I don't know as much about ocean biology as I do uh, of like, you know, what would they, terrestrial biology, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, um, and I was doing a lot of research a couple months ago at this point on uh, Mediterranean climate zones. And it, it blew me away, like how little of the earth is actually considered like that same, you know, the same climate that we would assume with the Mediterranean. Um, huh. It's very small and it's, it's, a very populated area where if there's, if there's a Mediterranean climate, there's probably people there. Um, and I didn't realize that. And, and kind of also because the cross pollination of plant species and being able to kind of take to any Mediterranean climate and okay. have it be successful. Um, 
once again, if I didn't live in San Diego, I would have never known all this. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, okay. So fast forwarding again, uh, what is ocean acidification? Could you help me understand that? Sure. Um, so one of the things that you hear a lot about with climate change is the amount of greenhouse gases, right. That are building up in the atmosphere. Um, mostly carbon dioxide. It's not the most potent one, but there's by far the most of it compared to any of the other ones that are having an effect. Um, so mostly from um, cars and power plants and stuff like that. Um, so the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has, I don't know, it's getting close to having doubled um, since a couple hundred years ago. Um, and so it's been increasing pretty rapidly and pretty much everything that is increasing the atmosphere, as long as it can dissolve in water, it's also increasing in the ocean, um, just because it's gonna be dissolving into the ocean too. And so what happens, especially with carbon dioxide, is when carbon dioxide dissolves in the ocean, it actually reacts with the water and forms something called carbonic acid, which is what is in like soda. Um, and so if you have, and in beer actually, and so if you have anyone who's involved in, I know like the microbrewery thing is big or people making their own beer, they'll have a tank of carbon dioxide um, is part of the setup. Same thing that restaurants will have if they have a soda machine and they'll have a tank of carbon dioxide and just pumping in the carbon dioxide makes it acidic and it, in, the, in that case makes it fizzy too, which is not what's happening in the ocean. Um, but anyway, so this produces carbonic acid and releases hydrogen ions when it breaks down, which is what acidity or pH is measuring, which is the measure of acidity. And so just the fact that the carbon dioxide is going up in the atmosphere, dissolving in the ocean and forming this acid um, is making the ocean slowly more acidic. Um, and the ocean is not nearly as acidic as like any fresh water, partly because it's got a lot of other, what are called buffers in it. So these are chemicals or compounds that can absorb acidity or absorb these free hydrogen ions and basically neutralize them. Um, and so the ocean has a great capacity to do this, which is why the pH or the acidity has not been changing as much as it certainly would have otherwise. Um, the oceans are getting more acidic, but it's not like um, increasing at the same level as some of the other environmental variables that are changing. But the issue is that in addition to getting a little bit more acidic, the ocean, the main, one of the main buffers that it uses or one of the main um, ions that's buffering this acidity is carbonate. And carbonate is what's used in the shells of pretty much everything that has a shell. And so this means that corals and clams and oysters, um, anything like that, their shell is made of calcium carbonate which is there's pretty much enough calcium everywhere in the ocean. So the main thing that they need to make their shell is carbonate. So they need carbonate just like to be freely dissolved in the water. So every time you get one molecule of carbon dioxide dissolving in the ocean, it's basically taking one molecule of carbonate out of the ocean um, because it's binding it to the, the hydrogen ions that it releases. And so the ocean isn't getting that much more acidic, although it is getting more acidic. Um, but one of the causes that it's, or effects that it's having is that it's taking these 
basically these shell building blocks out of the water. Um, and so this is one of the, I, I guess by now it's sort of getting well studied, but was for a long time, people basically thought that was fantastic that the ocean was absorbing a lot of the carbon dioxide um, that was, you know, released into the atmosphere. Because up until I think the mid nineties, everyone's just like, oh, that's great. You know, two thirds of it's just dissolving in the ocean. That's gonna be the buffer that will sort of save the rest of the world and everything. And then there were a lot of ideas that, okay, so could we capture carbon dioxide and pump it into the deep sea um, and just, you know, get it out of the atmosphere that way. And then yeah, nineties, early two thousands, people started looking at like ocean acidification, what's actually happening. And since then it's gotten a lot more complex in terms of the research, like seeing, so now we know pretty much anything that builds a shell is going to be negatively affected in some way. So whenever you see predictions of like, what is the future ocean gonna look like? You'll see something like that in the BBC or whatever. Things without shells is like jellyfish. Jellyfish and soft bodied things are gonna love warm water and um, less carbonate in the water. Um, things with a shell, not so much. But now there's a lot of research that's looking into other sort of more complicated effects, which is usually how the research process ends up going. At first, it's like, all right, let's get the obvious stuff first. And then it's sort of, oh, maybe it's more complicated. And that's where we're seeing that acidification can like interfere with the ability of some organisms to sense chemicals in the water and stuff like that. So maybe they can't sense their predators as well. Maybe they can't um, find their food as easily, for example, because the water's a little more acidic. And that's something that, that's more like the last 10 years that people have been started to, starting to look into that stuff. Um, sorry, that was a pretty long-winded answer. No, give me, give me as many long-winded answers as you can. That was great. <laughs> um, wow. So I, I knew about the, I knew what, well, I've heard of acidification and I've heard of its effects on uh, shell, uh, is it crustaceans? Is that how you, the shelled organisms? Um, some crustaceans have, so like crustaceans is like clams, I'm sorry, crabs and um, lobsters and stuff like that. Um, they have some carbonate in their shells, but there's, it's actually not mostly um, calcified. They're made of like, chitin, which is hmm. like protein matrix. Um, they're not supposed to be as vulnerable directly. Um, mollusks, I'd say. This, so that's the group that includes others than, other than octopuses. They all have shells. Um, and so that's, I'd say, the group that's and corals, um, sort of the most directly negatively affected by the carbonate issue associated with acidification. Yeah, I, so I, I've heard of the acidification and, and I've heard its effects on, well, I've heard it's affecting coral reefs. I didn't understand how until right now. And that made me, that makes me all the more worried to be honest. <laughs> uh, well, can I put a glimmer of hope in there then? Of course, um, yeah. So a lot of the issues associated with the acidification have, it's, there are very few things that the research has like universally shown, oh, it's bad for everything. Um, even within a group, so even within mollusks, there's definitely a capacity of some organisms to do better than others. Um, some things that, so there's, there's like a whole bunch of, I'm not going to get into all of it, but there's all sorts of different characteristics of their shells that can make them more or less 
vulnerable to acidification. And so in some cases, there'll be some, you know, some snail species will be really negatively affected and others will be basically unaffected um, based on things that we don't normally think about, like the microstructure of their shells. But one of the things that corals can do that's made them actually more resilient to acidification than we thought they'd be, um, because they actually are made of a form of um, shell of, of calcium carbonate called aragonite, which is especially soluble. Um, and so they were definitely, when, when ocean acidification started to become like well-known, people like, well, the corals are in big trouble. Um, that's the number one thing most people thought of because they have this more soluble form of shell. Um, but they are essentially a, a whole bunch of little soft-bodied animals that are making a shell. Um, so if you'll ever look closely at a coral, you'll see lots of little uh, things with tentacles and stuff that is actually the animal itself. And so they basically are sitting on top of the skeleton while they're making it. And so they have some ability to control the chemistry of the water in that little area beneath their body. Um, so they can, it might take them a little bit more energy, but they can actually control the environment in which they're calcifying. Sort of like if we're, you know, if we're outside when it's really cold out, our body temperature is still going to be about the same. It'll take, it will burn more calories because our body's working hard to keep up with it. So eventually it might be a negative effect, but in, in a similar way, they're able to still produce shells or in air, in basically conditions where you wouldn't think they'd be doing that well. Um, some pretty amazing examples of that are deep sea corals. So they don't form reefs, but so deeper in the ocean has really high levels of carbon dioxide because there's no plants down there that are um, taking up carbon dioxide. So it's basically just animals and they're all producing it. So the oceans are pretty acidic down there. And the pressure actually makes um, calcium carbonate more soluble, which means that it's even harder for animals to make a shell. And so theoretically, if you're just looking at it from like a chemistry standpoint, there are most of the bottom of the ocean, you shouldn't be able to have calcifying animals, um, but you do. And a lot of it's sort of due to this these things that they can produce different structures or they can cover themselves in something. So like deep sea corals, um, they are living in environments where corals shouldn't be able to live just based on the ocean chemistry there. But they are basically, they still have this calcium carbonate shell, but they have like a thin layer of their tissue covering the entire thing. And so that's why, like if you were to Google deep sea corals, most of them are pretty colorful. Um, not because they are like shallow water corals are colorful because they have a symbiotic relationship with algae that are colorful that live inside them. Um, but deep sea corals are basically just covered in a thin layer of tissue that's protecting their skeleton from the ocean water. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's really amazing. I, I never thought of corals as, I guess I just kind of always assumed that corals are living and they're just some type of rock species but i guess you're, you're kind of making me understand more that they're little organisms that are actually building these type of things yeah they're related to like jellyfish and sea anemone huh. um they're just little animals with tentacles basically and they the, the reefs which are you know these hugely important habitats because they 
provide all sorts of environments for animals to live and hide and um, reproduce and everything like that. The reefs are formed by these corals that are doing a really good job in low nutrient waters. Like, you know, you know you're going to find them in the Caribbean where it's warm water that's um, really low in nutrients, which is why it's crystal clear. Um, and same thing, you get like the Indo-Pacific and Australia and parts like that. Um, they have little algae that are living inside their cell, or inside the little coral polyps. And the algae are, as all algae and plants do, getting energy from the sun. And so they have this mutually beneficial relationship with the coral, where they get sort of the coral waste, which is fertilizing them. And they get energy from the sun because they're in shallow waters. And then a lot of their excess energy, their excess sugars and stuff goes right to the coral. And so corals get about, so in some cases, up to 90% of their energy from these little algae that are just living inside them. Um, and so this is why coral reefs need to be in shallow, clear waters, because otherwise the, their symbiotic relationship with the algae inside them wouldn't work. Wow. I'm getting a much better understanding of why coral reefs are so fragile. Yeah, the relationship with the, so the little algae are called zooxanthellae, and it's a pretty complex relationship. If you've heard about coral bleaching, um, it's not actually when the coral dies, although it often leads to that, um, but it's when they get rid of the zooxanthellae that are living inside them. Um, Which is why they lose their color too, the, right? What was that? Is that why their color goes away too then? Yeah, exactly. So the color is the little algae. And so if a coral doesn't have them in there, then they're basically transparent and they look white because that's the color of their skeleton. Um, and so they're like a roommate in there that in ideal times is, you know, making lots of money and paying the rent and everything. And that's great. But if the conditions get unfavorable, like the water gets murky and so there's not much sunlight or algae start like um, larger algae starts growing over the top of the coral and blocking the light, then it doesn't benefit you to have plants basically algae living inside you that can't get any sunlight because then they're sort of sucking out more nutrients than they're producing. And so the coral ejects them. The coral can basically spit them out um, and bleach. So it's a bleached coral because it's so we were not being helpful anymore. So it's not dead necessarily, but you can imagine if it's getting 90% of its energy from the zooxanthellae and it kicks them out, then it's generally not doing very well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's more susceptible to things then? Or, so I, I guess the, the bleaching doesn't necessarily mean the coral is dying, but it's, it's definitely becoming more instable. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's pretty likely to end up dying at that point. I mean, they can still get some energy by capturing little animals from the water. Um, but corals need to, basically they're competing for space wherever they're living. Um, they want to compete with other corals to sort of grow on top of them. And so if you are losing most of your energy, your growth is going to slow down and you're probably going to get out competed by either other coral or like macroalgae, which is large algae that's um, sort of growing in the same environment. And so, yeah, it makes them susceptible to disease. It makes them, I mean, you can imagine if you cut your calories down to 10% of what you're eating right now, um, that's going to have a pretty big negative effect 
Um, and so there's actually some, uh, again, on the, on the positive side, there are some studies, I think, I think there's researchers that are coming up with excuses to go to um, islands in the South Pacific, but there's, I forget where it is, like French, Poly uh, Marea, I think, in French Polynesia or something. Um, but they've, there's some areas in around the island where the water's warmer um, because it's shallower or something, I don't exactly know. But they found that they have different varieties of zooxanthellae inside of them that are more heat tolerant um, and do better in the warmer water. So the coral's able to, you know, kick out their old roommate that's not paying the rent and bring in someone new that can do better in that environment. Um, they might not do as well, so it still could have a negative effect, but um, the capacity of a lot of these things to adapt is pretty impressive. Yeah, impressive and really unknown, right? Right. Um, I, I do, I, I've... I've looked into a lot of uh, like around the, the starting of the Holocene, right? Like coming out of the ice age into that and the shift of species and the, and stuff like that. And mostly because I'm interested in the Anthropocene and kind of the unfortunate mass extinction event we're going through. Um, and it, it's really, it's really fascinating to me uh, how many species either shifted in their niches or evolved into whole different things um, or things like the, uh, What's the American antelope? Uh, the name of it is really eluding me right now. Um, the pronghorn? Pronghorn, yes. Thank you. Yeah, the American antelope. Um, it's like the, it's one of the fastest species ever. And that's because uh, and, and there's no predator in North America that can catch an adult pronghorn. Um, okay. So the only, the only things that feast on pronghorns, which is like uh, coyotes can um, and increasingly are, uh, you know, definitely uh, cougars can uh, mountain lions or whatever uh, wolves if they're in the habitat but it's only their fawns okay. so so they, they always have twins which is also interesting um, but they can never if they're in adulthood they almost live to be you know old age because they're so fast uh, huh. they, they can't jump though which is really interesting so th a lot of times they get corralled because of like ranches and then they end up getting something will get them because they they can't jump which is really interesting um, yeah. but anyways they evolved because of North American hyenas and dire wolves and the American lion. Um, and all of the, all of the animals I just said would be able to catch a full grown full, full gala pronghorn. But all of those species died off in the, you know, the mass extinction event that happened coming out of the ice age. Um, so it, it's, I've been trying to find these wellsprings of kind of, well, to your point, hope, but also just kind of a better understanding of the, the time we're in and, it's it's interesting that it's 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 happening what I just kind of described is happening in real time but with other species in the ocean. Um so are these other other species that are coming in that are more adapted, were they always there and they're just taking a bigger percentage or are they kind of coming in from tidal currents or something along those lines? I don't know a ton about it. Um I know that the cells and belly that are living in them, they they can live just in the water mm. well. I think they don't do as well there as they would when they're actually inside the coral. Um, I'm guessing it's a lot about sort of the ratios that they're all there to some level and then they're becoming more common. Um, right, opportunity. But I have no idea, like, again, this is sort of a random island in the Pacific. 
I don't know if the same varieties exist in different places, or I, I would assume it's pretty different. Right. If you island to island, like I don't know if you went to Hawaii, if you would find similar results. I, I really have no idea. Yeah, that's interesting. I, it, at least there's some hope, right? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I, I also wanted to ask with the, so the corals having to, almost like a requirement for them is to be in shallower water. Uh, because yeah. access to sunlight and all that um is there and, and also the tidal zones too this is actually going to go this question is going to go with that as well um how much is the rising sea level affecting those as well like both the access to sunlight because of you know i mean you know 10 meters of water above you is going to make a lot darker of a <laughs> of a spot than before um and same with the tidal zones i mean the, it's going to be a moving and moving, uh, you know, further and further up into areas that probably didn't touch the ocean and are going to get affected by it. And then if they're going to be the same type of rich ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I think for corals, if they're doing well, it's all about the rate at which the ocean is rising because, because corals are growing. If they're doing well, then, I mean, sea levels have gone up and down over time in the past um, substantially a lot more than they are now. Um, but the rate of it's pretty fast now. And so theoretically, corals could like grow vertically to maintain their you know, similar distance because they can sort of just grow on top of themselves and pile on top of themselves and stay a similar distance from the, um, from the surface of the ocean. But if you're getting like in the in the Caribbean, if you get an increase in storms that are like damaging corals, and then you also get an, you know, increase in all sorts of other stressors that are meaning the corals aren't doing as well and maybe can't grow as fast, it sort of ends up being a domino effect where maybe they can't do that as easily as they could. Um, but at least theoretically, they, a healthy coral shouldn't really have that much of an issue with a slowly rising um, water levels. Um, along the coasts, if you had a completely undisturbed area, I don't think it would really be an issue. So if you just say, I don't know, in the U.S., maybe Alaska or something like this, even if it rose a meter in 10 years, which is way more than it's going to rise, I think most things, that's plenty of time for them to reproduce and just, you know, settle on a new spot in the intertidal zone. But one of the things that we're seeing, especially in on the East Coast, and maybe on the West Coast as well, but I'm not as familiar with it, is like in New Jersey. New Jersey used to be almost entirely salt marshes along the coast, which were not only sort of nursery habitats where a lot of fish come to reproduce and their babies hide there from predators and stuff like that, but they're also really important in sort of attenuating wave energy. So if you're going to get a big storm, then if the waves make their way through salt marshes first, there's not really much of an effect by the time it gets to the actual shoreline. But as we've built all these structures along the coast, um, first of all, the, a lot of the salt or some of the salt marsh has been destroyed just by actual building because we'll sort of build up in that area. Um, but then if you were to go along the Jersey shore, you'll see that pretty much anywhere there's houses, they have a seawall in front of them um, to protect them from storms and waves and stuff like that. And this means that there's sort of a backward limit on the ability of a salt marsh to sort of migrate. And so theoretically, right, if you didn't have that there 
and the sea level was rising, the plants could over time just sort of move, um, slowly work their way further away from the ocean and stay at about the same level in the water and it wouldn't be a problem. Um, but there's now a road or a cement wall or something that's at the back. And so you're getting these salt marshes that are shrinking and shrinking and getting eroded away because they basically have nowhere to go. So even, you know, I don't know what New Jersey's been, it's been something like six centimeters of rise, which doesn't seem like a lot. Um, but if that means that things are getting exposed to more waves and to being submerged more than they would prefer to, um, it could have a, a negative effect over time. And so they're sort of trapped by the way we've built up. Same thing with like mangroves and other plants that are sort of coastal. If we built up behind them, then they don't really have anywhere to go. Yeah, that's, so, that, that's a good point. I, I was reading a report about the, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with San Diego. Uh, if you're not, I'll, I'll just plug this. So there's a giant recreational bay here called Mission Bay. Okay. Uh, and it used to be. What it is, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're always welcome to come here again. It's a, it's a really fantastic <laughs> place. Um, so there's a, a bay here called Mission Bay. Everything in California is called Mission. I, I get really frustrated by the fact that there's only like six names for the entire state and everything just gets reproduced from it. Um, but anyways, uh, it's called Mission Bay. And it used to be one big uh, saltwater marsh. So I'm doing, I'm doing like a little side project um, with some aerial photography and I'm looking at these like old pictures from when like the forties and the, and the fifties kind of when San Diego was um, intentionally changed from a military city to a tourist city. And one of the first things that they did is they gutted the entire mission Bay and they turned it into a, a recreational area. So like you'll see these pictures from like the forties and like the, like I, I live on crown point in, Mission Bay, so it's like this big outjut, um, oh. and you you would see this, but then the rest of the bay is it looks so foreign to me because it, it didn't have islands on it because they've built islands, so it is they kind of dredged all of these saltwater oh. marshes, um, and they used all that dredging to build these recreational islands and uh, kind of selling San Diego as like a weekend motoring, like you know, water uh, sport hub, which is what it is now. Oh. Um, but I was reading one of the reports of some of the recent uh, publications that the, the state and the city have been releasing because, because of sea level rise. And one of the things it was saying that really stuck with me was, you know, one inch of sea level rise actually equates to feet of problems. And the reason is because it rises a little bit, but with like right now we're in a king tide. So we're having our highest tides of the year and, you know, a little bit of rise in the ocean level means a bigger rise in the yearly cycle of, of tides, which then leads to kind of what you're saying is actually the shoreline goes further and further back, which then means you're going to have, you know, you're, you're either pulling more things into the water, like destroying concrete structures or things like that. And then pulling that in there, which then if you're in California, you know, uh, most of the coastline is very unstable rock. Uh, it's, yeah. it's very, very soft, very unstable. Um, and, I can't remember the name of the town, but there's a town in central California. They actually had to move inland and abandon the town because yeah. it was, yeah. Cause it was on the coast and you know, you wouldn't think like, you know, 300 feet down the, the ocean is actually affecting all of this cliff face and like, you know, you know, a hundred feet back from the, the top of the cliff because 
all of this rock is unstable. So, you know, the, the second order effects of something as seemingly small as, you know, three inches, right, is actually, and depending on the, the places, again, kind of going back to geography, could actually mean a big, you know, effect. Um, I'm also really sad that they drug all of the saltwater marshes up because I wonder what, I wonder what it would have been like to come here before. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you, I know you do some of your work too, with like the warming of the ocean as well. So is, is this kind of, is, is the carbon um, and the acidification that's kind of coming from that? Actually, wait, I have one more question I want to bring up. Sure. Um, do you remember that Kevin Costner film Waterworld? I never saw it actually. Well, if you have some time in your pandemic, it's it's a it's a great guilty watch. You know what I mean? Like you go into it knowing it's a bad movie, and it's going to be a good movie then. Okay, um, yeah, I've heard I'm mostly it being known as a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's so bad it's good. I guess okay. That's yeah, it's it's enough. it's definitely really bad once you realize that they thought it like the studio thought this was going to be like the biggest movie of all time. <laughs> they had like Dennis Hopper and. Uh, um, I did Kevin Costner in it and they were like deeming it as this really big thing. And then it did horrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the things in that movie is like the ocean is um, filled with these species that are just like huge and monster like and, and totally different. Um, okay. And one of the, like, just these random questions that is like, I, I, I wanted to ask you is you brought it up is like the ocean wildlife is probably going to change right the biology of the makeup so it's probably going to be less shelled you know less mollusks and things like that um something i wonder is is you know in a hundred years from now when my hopeful descendants are, are roaming the earth uh are, are they going to just be going into the ocean and constantly worrying about squid is it just going to be like a you know like a water world of just giant squid everywhere <laughs> I think jellyfish would be definitely be the one that's there's a lot more of. Um, yeah, I mean, squid are certainly as mollusks that go, they they'd be relatively unaffected, and they can you know they can go deeper in the water to be a lot more um, isolated from some of this as well. Um, I know they're seeing like Humboldt squid, which are Southern California animal, used to not really make it that far up into. California, but they see them occasionally up in, you know, like Puget Sound now. There's these like large groups of them um, that'll move around. And so it's possibly linked to a temperature change that's had them sort of doing better. Um, I don't know. It's so, the issue, I guess one of the issues is it's so complex. It's not just like you can say, well, this animal, if we put it in a lab and made the water warmer, it's going to do, if it does better, then that means it'll do better in the wild. Um, because anything, yes, anything that doesn't have internal body temperature control, if you make the water warmer, its metabolism usually goes up, which means it needs to eat more. Um, so it needs whatever's beneath it on the food chain to be doing well as well. And whatever beneath is that, whatever's beneath that on the food chain needs to be doing well. And so, yeah, if, I guess if the fish that the squid eat are also doing well, which I guess they could be. Um, and there, the fish food is doing well, then you certainly could get an explosion in, in the populations, but it always ends up being a lot more, I guess, complicated than you'd hope it would be from a predicting standpoint. Yeah. 
Well, that's kind of reality though, right? Uh, (laughs) I think about this too. Um, There's this great author, Dan Flores. He's, he's written a bunch of books um, on uh, kind of the North American uh, wildlife and ecosystem. And a lot of what he writes about is kind of how America got this wildlife that we have. So like, for example, like why is the pronghorn only in mountains um, mm. Same with like grizzly bears and elk. We think of those as mountainous, right? When they're actually prairie animals, um, but we don't have any prairie left. So they fled yeah. to the mountains. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things that he really shifted my, my thinking of was on white-tailed deer and how this big push was made um, with the, one of the wildlife, federal wildlife agencies to kind of eradicate predators so it was like, get wolves off the land, get mountain lions off the land, get coyotes off. Well, they tried to get coyotes off the land. That really bit them in the ass. Um, but, you know, to get all these predators off. And then what it ended up doing was exploding all these prey species. And they right. didn't really, they didn't plan for that or even think of what that would mean. Um, and what it actually ended up doing is that they were having these massive fields and areas and, and, and whole regions that were kind of, plant lives was dying off they were just having these massive issues and it was because the prey have no natural mechanism to stop you know growing right they're they're the predators what was what was kind of checking their population so they ended up just kind of exploding and having all these second order effects of well what do we do now that all the predators are gone because you know the prey are kind of eating themselves to death um and that's kind of another example of what you're saying is you know you you, you can't just add something or take something away from an ecosystem it's it's such a complicated web that do, even just doing that it's you, there's way more factors to consider like the squid and their and their food source in, in this instance or really anything else um which is it's fascinating from like a curiosity perspective but it's got to be frustrating from a researcher <laughs> yeah yeah especially yeah especially when if you're trying to translate it to policy, it that's not the friend. I don't know. It's not a friendly answer to a policymaker. Like, will you know removing this one species have much of an effect on the ecosystem? Um, uh, yeah, the, the fact that well, it's complicated. We don't really know. You know, is is not a great answer. Or like, get you know, if it's give me a number, what you know what percent of the coral could we lose and still have a healthy, you know, coral population or what temperature increase globally is going to be one that we can, you know, deal with. It's yeah. Having to sort of pick a number and say like, that's it for the whole world is, I mean, you have to do something and start somewhere, but it's um, very oversimplified, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure, sir, if you'd feel comfortable saying this, but I'm going to. And I think even posing that, even as a policymaker, posing that as a question to a scientist, I think is asinine because I think it shows a complete lack of understanding or wisdom in the policymaker to say, to even say like, well, what's the number? You know what I mean? Or what's the percentage? It's like, oh, come on. Like, this is such a complicated and yeah. interconnected web. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a cartoon that I don't know what it is actually based on, but that I like. That's a, I, I guess it's in showing like a town hall or something like that where people are, um, scientists or whoever are proposing some sort of 
maybe not the Green New Deal, but something like that, where they're like, okay, we're going to create, we're going to do all these things. Um, and someone in the audience says, you know, what if climate change isn't real and we are creating these new jobs and making the earth cleaner for nothing or something like that? <laughs> it's like, well, that's not a bad thing. Right. But, right. But yeah. I, I, it's not real. I'm just saying. No, no, no. It's, it's what's the, the casting a, a doubt to, to kind of bring nihilism, I suppose, then. Um, yeah, I, it's a reoccurring thing on, on the show as well as my own constant screaming into a void of, uh, I, I just get really frustrated with policymakers because it's like, I mean, something is like that, that perfectly encapsulates it. Like, well, you know, if we do this, it's going to be easier to do a lot more other things. You know what I mean? Uh, like, I don't know, living. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's just, it's, I had a, a guest on the podcast, uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Um, he's, I, I say this all the time. I don't know how comfortable he is with me saying it, but he's considered one of the greatest living historians. And that's pretty much a fact. Um, and he says something to me that I think about pretty much every day now, actually. And it's, it's bad ideas are almost always more influential than good ideas. Um, and his, his thought on that is uh, bad ideas tend to be like very gross, simple, or, you know, uh, dilutions of whatever it is. And because they're so kind of simple and diluted, they can catch fire. Because if I say a bad idea to you, it's probably you, you get it pretty easily and you will say nearly the same you know, if this is a game of telephone, you're going to say almost the same thing to somebody else, right? So right. the bad idea doesn't lose its, you know, uh, shape as it's transformed between all these different consciousnesses. Sure, that's an interesting point. Right, where like what we're talking about with in this entire conversation of like the complete madly complicated web that that is, you know, an ecosystem that, you know, like I I would say that you know ocean ecosystems are more complicated than terrestrial ones because the water is so you know it's so viscous and it's around you so much and it, it's, it almost affects you more than it would like air. Right. Um, right. It varies a lot more than yeah. it's not like if you're going to, it's like, Oh, can I, can I go to Florida this time of year? Because what is, what if the oxygen levels are too low or something like that's not a thing in the air. No. And that's not even something I thought to consider in the ocean. So that just proves my point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so like good ideas are so complicated and they require so much effort to really understand um, and, and comprehend that when I express this to you, you know, this complicated idea or what you're doing to me, right. To understand like oxygen levels will vary in Florida by year, you know, um, I'm going to have to understand like, well, what makes the oxygen that's in that ecosystem, what, what's causing it to, to shift. And then, you know, whatever level of understanding I have is probably a subset of what maybe even you assume that I have. So if I go and try to transform that into telling somebody else, it's this game of telephone is going to, you know, fizzle out much quicker than just saying climate change isn't real. Right. 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 Um, there was one speaking of things that sort of stuck with you. I don't, I don't know where this fits in policy and everything like that, but um, there was a scientific conference a few years ago. I don't know, maybe several years ago at this point, And, you know, a lot of the research was that was on corals and stuff, especially was, you know, what percent change in coral growth do you get with the, you know, this, this increase in temperature? What percent? And so, you know, probably tens, if not hundreds of talks that were all about like, 
okay, if we increase the temperature two degrees, what sort of effects do you get and all these sorts of things. Um, and there was a, a keynote talk by a well-known uh, coral reef biologist, Jeremy Jackson, and he sort of took everyone to task and said, like, you guys are focusing on this stuff that's 100 years down the road or 200 years down the road. Um, these corals are going to be irreparably damaged in 10 or 20 years from stuff we can actually control, like trash and pollution and like overfishing and stuff like that, that are things that you could actually make a difference on fairly easily with policy. Um, and so there's sort of a disconnect too, I think, between this sort of scientific, let's understand how everything works. And I mean, no one's, well, like I'm sure some people are, but not many people are doing studies just saying, you know, is it bad that people are going out and like doing like dynamite fishing and coral reefs and stuff? Well, obviously it is. So it's not going to get a lot of sort of scientific focus and everything like that. So I don't know. There's this focus on these very, I mean, I'm, I'm lumping myself in there obviously as well these questions of these long range problems and some of these habitats are facing much more urgent short range problems that may make some of the longer term ones not very relevant. Um, like if the, the Florida Keys coral reefs are some of the worst shape in the world um, and it's not mostly due to climate change, not saying that climate change isn't a huge issue, but you could have more of an impact presumably by changing some of the short-term policies that could, you know, be more impactful, I guess. Um, huh. And I so I don't think that his critique necessarily applies to, you know, every climate change related issue. I think it's pretty maybe coral specific um, because they do have so many current threats um, and are such fragile habitats. I don't think you could just say, let's stop looking at climate related things, especially when there are examples of things that are already having impacts. Um, but for corals, at least that, that sort of stuck with me that um, his perspective on that. Yeah, that I'm going to, I'm going to definitely research a lot after into Florida now. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the big challenges in the Anthropocene is trying to figure exactly out what you just said um, because there is there is an obvious changing of our air chemistry that is having obvious effects that are you know a gradient of what it's affecting in different places right like uh, like Heiko Baltzer I was talking to him uh, Dr. Heiko Baltzer he, he's a, a geographer from University of Leicester he was on I think it was episode 11 and he was explaining to me how essentially, you know, the, the temperature and air chemistry mixture that's changing, you know, is affecting some areas far more than others. Like in the Arctic, you know, the, right. the changes in temperature is so much larger than it is other places. Right. Um, but also, you know, what is affecting, you know, specific areas. So like for forest fires, which is a lot of, you know, he does a lot of uh, satellite mapping to track that, you know, it's it varies. Like what's the, you know, factors of it. Like in California, it's partially forest management. It's partially because it's, you know, drought. It's, there's a lot of different things, but there's things, there's low hanging fruit that we could do to kind of help that along. Right. Like if we thin the forest out, 
well, then now all of a sudden that's, you know what I mean? It's, it's a similar thing to this coral reef. Like, yes, we should definitely be worrying about the fact that there's more carbon in the atmosphere and more methane in the atmosphere that's causing a, a drastic warming and, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the shifting weather patterns to like where the Midwest and Northeast are getting more, they're, they're actually getting wetter, but it's getting wetter in shorter periods of time, which is a huge problem. Um, and the West coast is getting drier and, you know, all these things like these are definitely like to your point, hundred year, 200 year problems that are going to like really come, the bills are going to come due, you know, a, a little bit further down the road, but yeah. there are things we can do now. And I, I don't know. I really just like the media apparatus uh, in general, because I think they have a hard time discerning those two things, right? Like, I feel like they're trying to really hammer in climate change, climate change, climate change. Yeah. When really, you know, it's, it's the effect that homo sapiens are having on the environment. And I think if you were to take that perspective, perhaps we could notice things like, okay, so if we just don't allow anything that's not reef safe sunscreen, okay, well now we have less tons of this than the, you know what I mean? Like let's, if, if we build or we figure out some way that you're not polluting as much into the coral reefs, well then all of a sudden that just goes down. If we put, you know, filters on, you know, treatment plants so that we can get the chemicals out, you know, get all the, I'm just going to keep saying cocaine to be funny, but like to get all of that out. Right. Um, you know, perhaps that we can, we can do things that are less affecting it. And I think the challenge in the Anthropocene is it goes back to, to Felipe's idea. It's, this is a really complicated thing. And the more complicated and abstract something is the harder that we're going to have a time conceptualizing it. Um, and then the, the harder it's going to be for that con- con- concept to change properly over time and not change improperly. You know what I mean? Not for us to get like a bad idea shoved in there, our own, you know, decaying memory, which just happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and change it. And, and I think it's going to be spotting things like this, like, Oh no, there's something we could do and we could do something and it could be, you know, the biggest effect, the lowest hanging fruit, the, the 80, 20, right? Like I, I do a lot of, con- I do consulting work in my uh, full-time job and like there's always that 80 20 when you're doing like a business transformation right like what's a 20 percent change that we can make that's going to affect 80 percent of what you do mm. which you know it, it's a rough cut but it's it, it's very frequent in most things you know like what's what's the areas that we can do to spot that um yeah and i think one of the things i mean i think everything you said is absolutely right about the communication issue but I think one of the downsides of that is people, whether it's scientists or people that are on the policy side or um, nonprofit side or whatever, they hear that and they say, okay, so we can't make it complex. We have to simplify it. And like, what's something simple that we can, so then it becomes simplified. And, but I feel like if you try to come up with a message, then if you're crying wolf and then the wolf doesn't come in the next two years, people are like, well, why should I care about this sort of thing? And so if someone, you know, makes it extreme enough that someone remembers like um, global warming is going to kill all the whales or something like that, that is a message that won't get distorted. Then five years later, when there's still just as many whales, people are going to be like, Oh, look like these people are idiots. Um, And then, you've lost your audience. I don't know. So I, I don't know if there's a great answer to that other than like to how you, how you message something that is not going to have immediate consequences. Um, yeah. Other than, yes, you certainly have seen a lot of it, like with the fires and the hurricanes. 
that even if there's not a hundred percent link to it, people at least focus on it as a tangible effect that it's having. So they can yeah. say, okay, maybe it would be good for me even now to try to make a change. Um, my my concern with that though is like the, I, I don't think news should be entertaining, right? Like I don't expect to, to have entertainment when I floss, right? <laughs> so, you know, I always use flossing because I hate flossing, but I do it every day. Um, and it, you know, it's, you don't need to, once I understand the concept, I, I'll continue going through whatever it is. Cause it's, it's beneficial. And I think that it's a boiling frog of energy of our news being entertaining. Right. And it started with like the Gulf war, right. With CNN. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, like, this is crazy. Like we're seeing all of this, you know, and then the 24 hour news cycle and everything is breaking news. Um, and it's so much so that it's like, we don't even realize that all of our news is so sensational, sensationalized that we don't even realize that we, we shouldn't expect that, I suppose, right? Okay. So um, I had uh, uh, this Professor Ophir um, on the podcast and he'll, his episode will be a little bit before yours. Um, and he's an expert in misinformation and disinformation on social media. Um, and he... You know, I actually, I, I wouldn't have thought this before talking with him. And I think we can learn a lot of lessons from misinformation. And I wonder if that's the way to transform this message is to actually take lessons from misinformation. And what I mean by that is what are the characteristics of a really powerful misinformation campaign? Um, okay. It shocks you. It tells a personal narrative and it tries to keep the narrative th flowing throughout in a type of Causa causational uh, chain of events, right? Um, and I'll go again to Felipe, like, you know, reality and history and, and, and everything goes. He said something that, again, that stuck with me, which is he never uses the word cause. He's like, you know, uh, he uses, he says, you know, people want to make history or events as a, a chain of sausages, but really mm -hmm. it's like a pile of sausages that some are connected and some aren't. Huh. Um, I would actually say it's more like a, a snake pit where there's all these things that are connected or not connected and they're all moving and everything's shaping and it's, it's getting formed and distorted um, all throughout time. And I wonder if the media was presenting itself in a different way and in, in a way of saying like, look, I'm going to present this to you as a causational effect just so that you can understand the point, but don't, you know, like take this at face value. Right. So right then and there it's saying, question me, which is like to your whale point may gain a little bit more trust. And then further on, let me tell you the story of somebody who's, you know, living in Puget Sound, who's now no longer having salmon there anymore. Why aren't they having salmon there anymore? Because of, you know, pollution in the rivers or a dam or whatever it may be. Um, and then kind of tell it that way, as opposed to what I'm seeing more and more, which is like, look at this headline number from the scientific reports. And, you know, look how shocking this is. And it's like, to me, I get shocked, but that's because I'm such a odd individual that I enjoy reading scientific research in my free time. So, you know, really esoteric language isn't going to scare me away, but I, I don't think, especially nowadays where most people are just kind of, you know, sucked into little Twitter amounts of attention spans. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's really the, the right way. Yeah. I don't know how you change that, but <laughs> I mean, I agree. I think if you, even if, like some fairly responsible news organization like BBC or something like that is like, all right, we're going to do a big thing, you know, report on climate change or something. And then 
the next day it's like all right so what are we talking about today and they've got their new you know their new list of stories of the day there's not other than i guess covid's been a thing that's been a steady stream in the news for almost a year now but usually you don't get that i feel like something will be like news of the day and then it's gone news of the day and then it's gone and that doesn't really fit the sort of climate change um narrative very well i guess no no it definitely doesn't um i don't know who knows maybe someone will come come along and and disrupt their model um and force it because i think that's the only way i mean just like how you know a new species or new problem enters an ecosystem and all of a sudden it gets shocked and everything else has to kind of react to it i think that the same is true in, in business obviously and and i think that's gonna what that's what's gonna need to happen i don't think they're gonna want to change on their own um but it does seem like more people are getting interested in it. So that's at least good. Um, so I, I wanted to ask about the, the warming, the warming temperatures in the, the ocean and it's kind of some knock on effects with that. I know you, you spread it, you study uh, predators and prey a lot, right? Yeah. So how, how is that? Uh, well, I guess like the first direct question is that predator and prey relationship getting affected by the, the warming oceans. And, and if so, is it because of what we were, you were kind of, touching upon before with squid is, you know, maybe some link in the chain is getting taken out or, or what is it? Yeah, some are and some aren't. Um, and it's complicated. <laughs> but so like, um, actually one of the things that a lot of studies didn't do initially, but now most do when they're looking at temperature change and acidification is looking at them together. Um, because actually warmer temperature makes it easier to produce shell material to produce calcium carbonate gels. And so in some cases you actually can see what's called a rescue effect where the temperature is actually helping some things produce a you know, more substantial shell. And this is why some of the more negative effects that you're already seeing of acidification are towards the poles um, where it's cold because calcium carbonate's more soluble. So it's harder to sort of pull out of the water for these animals. Um, yeah, the, the temperature example, so one, the thing I mentioned earlier about generally warmer temperatures, meaning um, more meta or higher metabolic rate, which means they need to eat more. Um, it certainly can unbalance things. So for example, if you get a, so one of the um, organisms that I worked with back, I don't know, quite a while ago, but with these predatory snails, and they eat oysters. And so they basically drill little holes in the oyster shells and then eat them. Um, and they're both made of calcium carbonate, both the predator and the prey. And so from an acidification standpoint, actually the, the predator is made of a type of shell material that's more susceptible to acidification. And so there's that angle. But then the feeding rates of the predator went up, I, I forget how much, I think like 60 or 70% just with a three or four degree increase in temperature. Um, and so it's not just like a slight change, it's a pretty massive change. And so you get a predator that's probably a higher metabolic rate, probably struggling to make a shell because of acidification, but it's eating a lot more of the prey. Um, and so it's sort of a weird scenario where if the predator got largely wiped out, then that's obviously good for the oysters. Um, even though they have a calcium carbonate shell, which is why the, 
I mentioned this thing being so complicated because if you just look at, look at an oyster and make the water more acidic, that's negative for them. But if their main predator is even more negatively affected than they are, then it could be a net positive for them. And that's where it sort of ends up getting real complicated. But so, I mean, warming generally will make it worse on the oyster in that case until it's a negative, too much of a negative on the predator. And then it'll sort of be a positive effect potentially. Um, or less of a negative effect. Right, right. Um, and so I think a lot of these things, it's, it's what, what we don't really know is whether you're just going to get like these slight shifts like we see when, I mean, so I like to talk about how it's much better to look at a predator-prey relationship because that's more complex than a, like looking at a single species and how it responds. But it's much more complicated than that too. And so, I mean, someone who does like larger scale experiments would look at just like a simple predator-prey relationship and say, oh, you're oversimplifying things the same way that I'll do for people doing single species experiments. Um, but I think what we don't really know is whether you'll get sort of just gradual shifts like we sort of talked about with the uh, algae that live inside the corals. Like you might get a slight shift from one to the other or slightly more oysters, slightly fewer their predators or whether it's gonna like reach a tipping point and slip into some sort of alternate equilibrium where um, it becomes like completely oyster dominated estuaries or something like that, or oysters get completely wiped out. Like it's not clear whether it's gonna be some sort of runaway effect where as soon as it starts going one direction, it's like a positive feedback loop and it gets out of control or whether it's just gonna be these sort of, you know, oh, 10% higher, you know, predation on oysters, which is not that big of a deal necessarily. Um, so anyway, I, I think the temperature effects are much more complicated than the acidification ones actually, because there's not a lot of animals at least that are positively affected by acidification. But if you think about temperature, every organism, especially cold-blooded one, well, they don't necessarily have blood, but um, animals that don't control their own temperature they're gonna have a minimum temperature they can survive at and a maximum temperature they can survive at. And generally in about the middle is where they're gonna do the best. And so depending on where they are in their geographic range, warmer temperature is gonna be good for them if it's the Northern part of their range, presumably, because it's putting them close to their peak. Um, and if it's the Southern part of their range, then an increase in temperature is not good, presumably. And so, it becomes a lot more complicated in that way because it's not like acidification where some things, like some animals want it a little more acidic and some of them want it less acidic. I think generally they're pretty much adapted to a pretty stable level of acidity in the water. Um, whereas temperature, you can sort of make predictions, but I mean, even if you said snail species or something like something that people would consider pretty narrow. You're going to have a positive effect on some and a negative effect on others, depending on where they are in their range, presumably. Um, so it, yeah, it becomes, I think the temperature, the temperature issue is a lot more complicated 
um, partly because it's got more variability to it as well. Like, I guess there hasn't been as much on a global scale lately and that you'll get like, oh, 2020 is the hottest year on record. And before that, 2019 was the hottest year on record. And before that, like that sort of thing. Um, but it's not the same everywhere, like you've said. Like there's much more near the poles and all that. Um, and so, I don't know. I think it's easier to understand when it's like, like the Arctic and the Antarctic, you can say the ecosystem is largely driven by temperature because of the ice sheets. And so that one you can see here's a clear effect. Other places it, I, I, it's almost incomprehensibly complex because it's usually good for some and bad for others. Um, unless you have like one really important species like a coral species or um, it's a dominant predator or something like that that's really specifically affected by it that will sort of have ripple effects. And that's not a super clear answer. Well, I mean, I don't think I, I, I don't think I should have expected one anyways. That's okay. Given our, <laughs> given my comments on the media, I, I don't know if I could have done that afterwards. Uh, that's, that's, I say that's interesting too much. So I got to try to find a different ism, oh, I, but <laughs> I, I genuinely think that that's very fascinating. Um, I, I, I often see the acidification and warming as separate items so the way that you've described it as almost like you should consider those together. Um, it's really useful. Thank you for that. Uh, and it's also making me think like, uh, I, I heard, I heard this story from on social media and it was a guy like uh, in, in uh, uh, Alaska and he was like up there at, it might've been like early, early uh, spring or like late winter. And, and it was like 65 degrees or something. And he was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, look how warm it is. Um, and he was like, you know, taking this video. Um, and he mentions that to somebody in town. I think he was like an Anchorage. And they were like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely getting warmer here. It's cool, but we're getting really sick of the beavers. And he was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he's like, we're just been, we've been flooded with beavers for the past like couple of years. Really? Um, yeah. And it's because of like what you're saying, like, you know, the you know, obviously they're warm-blooded species, but uh, they're a mammal, but um, their range is getting extended further and further north because of the temperature change. Um, and that's having all kinds of problems for them up there. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, these marine species would essentially have to do the same thing as have a migration. But I guess my follow-up is how easy are they able, easily are they able to kind of migrate um, given the fact that a lot of these species are obviously very niche and the ocean geography is so chaotic. Like I've been getting really into like uh, building maps in Python with uh, uh, geospatial data. And uh, I had no idea just how like, uh, like I've come from the Midwest. So like the, the glaciers made everything flat there. So anytime I see something that's like, you know, really wild as far as like peaks and valleys, I always kind of get interested, but the ocean is way more, uh, jutted and things like that that we would imagine. I, I just kind of always imagine it's like, oh, there's the ocean floor, and it's like, nope, it's not like that at all. Um, so, how much are 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 these species migrating to like better suited areas, or is it not? Do we not know yet, uh, or is it is it complicated? Um, some are. I mean, it depends on the type of organism because if there's something like in the open ocean, then so like tuna, for example. If their prey are doing better in 
areas that are more north than usual, they can just move. And it's really not that big a deal. Um, and some marine invertebrates, that's the case as well. So if you had like uh, barnacles are a good example. There are these little crustaceans that they are attached to the rock as adults and but they have larvae that they release then the larvae get carried around by the ocean currents um, and then they attach somewhere and grow and everything like that. And so actually over I don't know how many years but there's sort of a, a record in I think it's England and Spain of these two barnacle species that there's like an index and I think it's very southern England that's like the ratio between the two of them is basically linked to temperature that you get a couple warm years and you'll get the more southern species coming up and then it gets colder again you'll get a couple cold years and they'll sort of switch back over to the other one because they'll die off a little bit and so like the ratio at this again I can't remember what the site but this one's kind of like Darwin's first. finches almost right Darwin's finches yeah, yeah it's it's very, um, it's, I mean, it's different. Yeah, I guess it's different species like the finches. Um, and it just sort of switches depending on the year because the larvae are coming from both places all the time. And it's just like whichever ones can survive. But you're, I mean, you're really onto something with the habitat because if you get something like, we were talking about how the Southeastern and basically all the US up on the East Coast up until New Jersey, Northern Jersey, New York, is basically beaches and marshes with very little rocky habitat. And so if you take animals that only live in that habitat and they want to shift northward, well, that type of habitat doesn't really exist there that much. Um, there's not really a beach habitat available to go. Like if you want to be a beach animal that is in Southern California, they get pretty sparse as you go north. Um, so if the habitat's available, then most marine invertebrates have pretty long dispersing larvae that are going to be able to move around and find a new habitat if it's available and sort of, yeah, they could definitely shift northward um, to sort of accommodate that. That's one. Another issue why the poles are having such a problem is there's nowhere for them to go. Um, huh. They're like animals that live on the top of, towards the top of mountains. Um, if you live lower on the mountain, you can move up when it gets warmer because you can just move with the temperature. Um, but if you live at the top of the mountain, then it gets warmer, you're in trouble. Um, so the poles are sort of like that for the world. But yeah, a lot of these things could move as long as the habitat's there. Um, That's interesting. The, the point about the poles is, is a, a really great one because uh, it's like, where else can they go? Um, something else that, that brings to mind to me is uh, because of the shape of, like the actual shape of the earth, the more north you go, the less land there actually is. So like the Mercator map that we use as projection, um, I think political leaders, the media and maps are the biggest things that I uh, rail on and, and not in that order. Just depends <laughs> on how much caffeine I've had. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like Canada looks huge and Canada is big. It's, it's very, very big as far as landmass, but it's a lot smaller than you think it is. And the reason yeah. is, is because the more north you go on, the actual sphere well it's not a perfect sphere but you know the ball of the earth um because of just surface area the less and less and less area you actually have um so what this is bringing me to mind is you know one you have the fact of like what you said like you know if you go north you're not 
you're not guaranteed to have the same habitat that you had when you were in South. Cause perhaps like, you know, as you're going up Cape Cod, all of a sudden you get to Maine and it's, you know, it's rocks, right. It's, you're not going to have beaches just like here in Southern California, you know, it's, you know, people think California beaches, but it's actually, there's not that many beaches when you keep going North, they're very small until you get to like, you know, more Northern Oregon. Um, so there are one, their habitats might not even be there. Um, and two, you know, because of what I'm saying about like the projection of the earth and, and the surface area, as you keep going North, you're actually going to have to be more hyper competitive because there's going to be less of a space for you and other species, which is going to create more turbulence and competition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point as well, especially if you think about like corals and stuff right now that live, like they do, like you mentioned, the Indo-Pacific, but they do really well there in part because there's so much, like there's millions of islands, literally. And so a lot of the research is living around the edge of the islands. Um, but there's not such an equal distribution of islands with shallow water surrounding them out just everywhere in the world. And so it's not like corals can just move more, more and more north onto similar habitats because those habitats don't exist in a lot of the other areas. Um, mm. and so, yeah, I think it's, that's a good point about the area that they have to move. Yeah. I spent a couple of weeks in the Philippines and I was in Palawan. Um, I was, uh, in, like, I was doing some like, uh, kayaking and some remote island chains there. But, uh, one of the things that it was explained to me there is that it's all like one big plateau almost like the Filipino mm-hmm. Philippine islands. Yeah. Um, and something I think about now is well, now that I'm thinking about this is, you know, we, I thought about it a lot when I was there because I was just experiencing all these wild, this wildlife, like, uh, you know, phosphorescent uh, algaes and things like that, that were just like blowing my mind. I felt like I was in a Star Wars or Star Trek episode. Um, and, you know, the, how in, insanely sensitive that habitat is and how it's almost like the, there's all these really di- diverse little niches on the earth that are similar to kind of what we have at the, the poles, but they're kind of getting suffocated out with nowhere else to go, like backed into a corner. Um, personally, this is my own musing, but I would love it if we took a more active hand in one, obviously trying to save them from doing things like, you know, cleaning your water before it enters or the, the ocean or things like that. But I mean, even trying to encourage growth of these coral reefs in some matter, if it's, you know, uh, building underwater structures or, you know, any, any number of things that I don't don't even know to think of uh, to try to help some of this along, because it just seems like, I mean, to me, I think it's, if, you know, we're looking back on this in 50 years, I think it's going to be an incredible tragedy of what we didn't even know we lost and could have had, you know, from, you know, we could think selfishly and think medicine, or we can think, you know, selflessly and just think like the interconnected web of, of life that's emerged out of this, this unique rock. Yeah, it's it's interesting with I feel like it's hard to do large scale projects that might save something if because people are hesitant to do something that they don't know the consequences of like um I w- saw something a while back about one idea that I think they had experimented with um I forget if it was Great Barrier Reef or somewhere else but somewhere with corals is like basically seeding the clouds to try to make it cloudier to protect the corals from some of the UV radiation that they were getting damaged by that was leading to some of the bleaching. Um, 
and then you're into i mean but then you're into modifying the the atmosphere the composition of the atmosphere basically for corals which i don't know i mean every every idea is going to have some people that are opposed to it but you're right on one hand it's like let's do something let's do something big and you know dramatic and fix it all um and then i feel like we get so paralyzed by not knowing all the answers that nothing happens um, yeah i also think as sapiens i don't know if this is culturally or if it's like a part of our firmware i i wonder these things a lot i'm i'm, up, I'm really thoroughly obsessed with culture and I, I wonder what the distinction and the divide is between what's something that's a cultural thing versus what's something that's kind of our firmware. Um, but I think at least in our present epoch, uh, we really love technological novelty. And I, I personally, I would like us to exhaust every single like low tech or no tech or ancient even solution first. Cause I mean, like, yes, we have this amazing vaccine that's coming out that I, I don't know how amazing it is. I'm not going to speak on it. I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but you know, we have a vaccine that's, it's coming out for COVID and, you know, we did it in a record time and that's amazing. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, I researched the Manhattan project a lot um, for a lot of reasons, but that's another like amazing feat of, of, you know, sapient ingenuity. Um, but when it comes to, nuclear war or it comes to dealing with a pandemic those are all low-tech solutions right like we're, we're we're doing quarantining which is something we've done since you know who you know how long back as you can go as we have paper you know right. what i mean like right just lock it lock people in a room or shut the city walls or um yeah. you know that that's a very low-tech solution and um this is i mean i really don't know if this is the case but i read a lot about cloud seeding and you know, either if it's putting, uh, what is it, silver nitrate in the air to make uh, make it rain or seeding the clouds like to, to create like, a, I think it's like stratus clouds that are like the ones that are just block the sun a little bit more. I wonder how much that is like a genuine effort from industry to, um, saw, you know, bring a solution to the table as it is them saying, if we can get this to work, we now don't have to worry about droughts for farming, right? Or, you know what I mean? Like, it, it seems to be that there's whenever you get one of those solutions we're like no if we can get this to work here like all of these things it's like ah but can't we just put some like you know like the aztecs used to have floating islands that they would have you know what i mean that they would create all of their farmland on why can't we just create floating coral reefs that then are able to you know what i mean like if they can only live you know 10 meters below the su surface why don't we just start building them things to build up on because then maybe we can actually have them start going on their own you know yeah um yeah, I, I think there's definitely something. I mean, the cynical side would say that they're partly throwing out these sort of dream scenarios too, so that as a distracting technique almost, or people are like, so there is something out, you know, if there were never any ideas that people were putting out there that were like the home run, basically the, the silver bullet, I guess, then people might focus on those sort of low tech things more often. But the more often we get teased with these, you know, oh, see, there's going to be a hydrogen car. So we don't really have to worry about the amount of, you know, fuel efficiency standards and stuff like that. Because in 30 years, we'll all be driving hydrogen cars anyway. Um, I'm not saying they're necessarily developing it for that reason. But I feel like, yeah, we latch onto these like single silver bullet things. Um, and in some cases, like you said, with the 
pandemic stuff where people could just, you know, be a little more, not that, I, I hate that it's become a political thing, but be a little more careful and do something really easy, like not go out as much and wear a mask, but instead everyone, yeah, is just waiting for a vaccine, I guess. Yeah, I, I think this is like an ongoing theme. I, I, I hope the listeners aren't too annoyed with me constantly bringing it up, but um I think, I mean, I think it's a, a fact that homo sapiens are obsessed with comfort. And this, again, this makes me wonder how much is this a firmware thing um, or is it a, a cultural thing? I think it's a bit of both because um, if you look at like predators, uh, at least I, I've looked a lot at mountain lions, uh, mostly because they're becoming a really big problem in California and I'm quite upset about it. Um, and uh if they if they're comfortable and they're well fed, they tend to be very lazy, and not much of a problem. Um, and I, I wonder if that's part of it, where you know, if where our livelihoods are set, or you know, our daily lives and our entertainment is set, you know, we, we kind of become comfortable. So when someone comes around and and says like, "Oh no, look, I'm gonna seed the clouds," and you're like, "Well, that's kind of crazy," and then you kind of get excited thinking about Star Trek, um, you know, and then it kind of you kind of start thinking like oh, well, I don't have to worry about the sunscreen anymore because we have cloud seeding, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of goes back to Felipe's point of, well, that's a bad idea, but it's easy to understand. So you're going to kind of latch onto it. And then it goes to the media again, where it's, it's entertaining of a concept, like, yeah. no, they're going to shoot this stuff into the sky, you know? Like, that's wild. Um, when, you know, when the actual solution, and I, I really know nothing about coral reefs to be able to say this, but you know, perhaps like a, the, the solution is really as low tech as like, no, let's just put a bunch of, you know, stuff in the ocean to help give them another plateau to go up. Cause I, I know like artificial reefs are becoming very successful and they're becoming like great habitats for, for your species. Like, well, couldn't we do something like that? And it's like, well, we could, but you know, it's not as flashy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. I don't know what's <sighs> frustrating in retrospect, all the things that one thing the pandemic has revealed is that the government can spend a lot of money. Um, and so all these times that, I mean, how many decades, well, more than either of us have been alive, you hear, we can't do that, it's too expensive. We can't do that, it's like, that'd be amazing, but it's too expensive sort of thing. And it's like, no, anything you really decide you need to do, you can spend money. I mean, who knows what the long-term consequences of the current spending will be, but in general, I don't know, that's, yeah, right. You'll say something like that. And I guarantee the pushback is, well, that'd be way too expensive, but it's like, well, we spend a lot of money on other things or whatever. Um, yeah. Or like, uh, <laughs> we spend, yeah, exactly. We spend a lot of money on other things. And, uh, the, the, I think the silver bullet for the defense play where it's like, why are we spending all this money on, you know, the, the military, it's like, well, cause we need a strong defense. And, you know, like I was raised an army brat. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really supportive of the military, probably more so than people would imagine given my like general uh, radical views when it comes to the environment. Um, but uh, climate, I, I hate saying climate change too. I, I try to say like ecological collapse. That's a really big national security problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's an enormous national security problem. Um, and, you know, you can, you know, let's go back to, uh, you know, the, the Holocene and, you know, coming out of the ice age, there was massive migrations of people 
because, you know, there's zones and areas that were just completely wrecked and ravaged and not able to, you know, sustain the same type of lifestyle. So people moved and, in, and, and you can even say that, you know, the, the Gallic people in Europe, you know, and, and Caesar's genocide of them was because there was a huge climate shift in that region. They weren't able to sustain themselves. So this massive million amount of people just all walked together you know, and then, you know, came up to the Roman empire and then Caesar wanted to make a name for himself. And, you know, there we have all of that said and done, but that there's nothing to say that's not going to happen again. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, in fact, you can even say, you know, there's obviously the political stunt um, on both sides of the border and, and you can even throw narcos in there and a whole bunch of things when it came to that micro migrant caravan. But that was a really great example of like, no, people can walk from Peru to the Southern border. You know what I mean? Uh, And there's nothing to say that's going to stop it. So you know, I, I think the psychological collapse is a huge national security problem. Um, but to your point too, I, I get, I'm really frustrated because it's like we have, you know, the lowest interest rates that I can think of ever seeing, right? And government, it seems like everyone is okay with putting U.S. bonds, you know, buying U.S. bonds. So it's like, okay, so we'll, 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 we'll go into a lot of debt to increase the government spending we have now without actually saying like, is this the proper spending that we should be doing? <laughs> You know, uh, and then furthermore, we're not even, you know, allowing these ideas to get brought to the table. And, you know, I, I think the Green New Deal is a great concept. I, I actually have a lot of criticisms with this application because I think it's trying to do too much with, and actually not enough at the same time, too much in certain areas and, and not enough at all in other areas. Um, but it's almost like you can't get that seat to the table, which to me is so frustrating because it's like, this is the opportunity to do it, you know? Um, but it, it seems like the zeitgeist is out and, you know, just to kind of circle back to some of the other things you said, I, I wonder how much of it is because it's a complicated issue. I wonder how much of it is, is because the people in, in, in those positions really aren't the right suited to, to be there because they don't understand the complexities or don't want to understand the complexities. And then how much that is the media not presenting these in, in, uh, in a way that's not just trying to make people, you know, having these novel reactions and, and kind of distilling it to very easily trans, you know, transformable communication. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it comes in my view, at least it comes back to the media and what people consume because I don't know, as frustrated as I always am with politicians, I feel like the main thing that frustrates me is I think pretty much almost all of them, at least in the U S would say, my number one job is to get reelected. Not my number one job is to do what's best for the people or for the country or whatever. And so that's an easy way to say like, oh, what a jackass, you know. Um, but it's the people that are reelecting them. And if they see it's important to people that, you know, any one of these things happens, then maybe that's how you see it as something that'll get you reelected. Um, so I don't know, I, I mean, always incredibly frustrated with politicians, but I think, yeah, in a lot of ways it reflects back on us and on the media too. Um, yeah. I, uh, um, the episode, there, there's another episode that's actually going to drop today. Um, and it's with, she's a Jonna Treble. She's a, a lawyer for Lone Star Legal in Houston. And she's, uh, she's fighting every day to keep people in their homes that are, are getting evicted because of, you know, loss of jobs with COVID and all that. Um, and, and what I said to her was, uh, you know, because she said, you know, I hope that politicians kind of make a change. And I was like, you know, this may sound esoteric and kind of out there, but I don't believe in hope. And I try not to put any energy into that. 
And the reason is, is because uh, hope is like a very passive thing. Like, oh, I just kind of hope that happens and you, you can kind of forget about it. Um, I try to build faith. So the example I gave her to this is I, I you know, I, I want, so I guess part of me, you know, is hoping that politicians will kind of wake up, but I don't have any faith in that happening. I, I think they're going to continue the status quo because that's, that's what they're there for. You know what I mean? Like they are really there to, to you know, increase the status quo and, you know, Noam Chomsky, who I've brought up a bunch of times in his manufacturing consent does a really great job kind of unpacking and dismantling the media apparatus and kind of all of how that plays into politics and all that. Um, but I do have a lot of faith that if people started pressuring politicians, naturally they're going to react and, and either new politicians will emerge or new ideas will emerge or new policies will emerge. You know, if we put just like pressures in an ecosystem, right? If we pressure them in the right way and say like, what are you doing about this? Right. But it's, I think the peril of our time is one that we're in one that there's so much information out there that it's hard to sift it through and understand it because it's all complicated. Um, and two, it's, it's hard to know who to trust and turn to in these type of situations because it's everything is distilled down to a soundbite. Yeah. In some way, in a weird way, it's almost encouraging that, I mean, I feel like people, probably the majority of people would say one of the biggest negatives about politicians is they'll just say anything to get reelected and they won't, you know, stick to their guns or whatever. But in some ways that's like, okay, well, if you have a bunch of people that are just don't really believe in anything and they're just doing what they think will get them reelected, that makes it very flexible. You know, if somehow you were able to change the, not you personally, but general people, um, the media apparatus of the way people think about things is, I mean, politicians would do, would change. I think very few would say, no, I believe in this, even if I lose, like, I'm not going to support, you know, whether it's a Green New Deal or something else, even if it makes me lose. I feel like there's very few people that would do that. Um, so. I think that's a great point. And, you know, if I was to put in game theory, I think that that's exactly what the answer would be, right? If I was to apply game theory to politics, it's, well, you have an actor over here that's, that's an, act, an active participant in the game and this is their characteristics, right? You know, they, they will do whatever the, their, their motivations are. They want to get reelected. Yeah. Um, how do they get reelected? They, they need donors. Okay, cool. Where are their donors coming from? You know, what, what are their messages? What's the kind of the push and pull between their personal lives that kind of come out of the media and how they use that, you know, to their advantage or disadvantage. And cause all of that kind of plays into it. And if you were to sit it down and say, this is a game, no, well, okay. Now, now we understand how this player is. How can we shift the game? So that player is working more in a different perspective or a different right. way. Right. Yeah. It doesn't feel like there's very many players that wouldn't move given the right, you know, impetus, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I completely agree with you. And like, my wife gives me a hard time because uh, I spend a lot of time reading about really dark things and like the ecological collapse or, uh, you know, the uh, Arctic sheet, uh, ice sheet melting, what that's going to do. And like all these really, really kind of doom and gloom things. But they they often, after kind of the decompression happens of, of whatever the information is, it often leaves me with way more hope because it's like, like, okay, like what you said about the mangroves and, and coral reefs in, in Florida, like, yes, we totally have to worry about what's happening 100 years from now, because that's going to be a really big problem. But guess what? We can do something that's going to not even, you know what I mean, to stop what's going to happen, you know, 20 years from now, that makes the 100 years a moot point. Um, it's, everything is connected. It's all just one big 
snake pit, right? <laughs> if you learn more about it, you can do more to kind of shape it in, in a better way. Um, cause there, like I said, I, I, there's ways to build faith, right? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else you want to just kind of toss out there before we, we go? We can wrap in a second, but if there's anything else. Um, well, not that I can think of right now. I really appreciate you um, taking the time. It's been interesting. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like it's been two hours. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it, but thank you very much.